Hello, everybody. I uh, am David Ubbin with The Athletic. I cover Tennessee. Um, a very sort of special, uh, I don't even know what we would call this, a Zoom roundtable uh, podcast. It doesn't matter. Um, but we we have, uh, we find ourselves in an interesting moment in American sports, specifically college sports. Um, we have players at Texas uh, saying they're going to hold out um, if, if uh, statues that they glorify um, racists are not uh, removed. Uh, buildings renamed. They don't want to see the eyes of Texas. Obviously, at Oklahoma State, Mike Gundy, Chuba Hubbard, they find themselves in a, an interesting situation. Obviously, a lot of this has come in the wake of, of George Floyd's uh, killing at the hands of police um, earlier this summer. And this has sort of bled over into sports. And so before we get started, I want to introduce uh, myself again. I'm David Ubb, and I cover Tennessee for The Athletic. I'm joined uh, by Ryan Clark. Ryan, you used to cover Florida State. You cover the Colorado Avalanche for us uh, at The Athletic. Uh, Colton Pouncey. Colton covers Michigan State for us at The Athletic. CJ Holmes. Uh, CJ covers Arizona sports for us at The Athletic. And Deshaun Reed. Deshaun, you used to cover uh, Florida State. You have now moved uh, a short jaunt across the country to Las Vegas to cover the Raiders in the NFL. Uh, thank you guys for, for being here. You know, before we get started, I, I want to zoom out a little bit because I, I feel like I'm, I'm mostly interested in pragmatism a little bit. I, I, I have very little interest in kind of preaching to the choir. I think, you know, if you guys uh, are sort of on board and, and are like, you know what, there's things that are wrong in the country. I want to help fix it. That's great. Um, but I, I think that we, we would like to address more, at least from my perspective, um, two camps. I think there's two things that I hear a lot. One, all this is so overblown. Uh, everyone's so sensitive now. Uh, you know, toughen up. Racism's nothing like it used to be. Stop complaining. You hear that a lot. I think these people are, are not uncommon. Um, and then I'll start there. What is you guys' message when you hear that, um, whether that's on social media, whether that's in the comments, whether that's in person, whether that's whatever that looks like, uh, when you see that, what is your response? Yeah, I mean, it's my initial response is just it's not your place to say that, particularly if you aren't a, a person of color, because racism has never affected you and it never will. So you don't get to say that somebody's overblowing how they're affected by racism or even historically um, what was worse. And because you have no idea, you can't judge it. You don't get to make that decision for other people. And that's my main thing is this isn't a time for you to evaluate how we feel is for you to listen to how we feel. Yeah, I mean, just because you're not experiencing it for yourself doesn't mean it's not out there. It doesn't mean it's not a threat for a lot of people out there. Um, and I think that's something that I, we're starting to see a little bit more. Maybe like Deshaun mentioned, people are starting to listen specifically this time around, even though we've been preaching the same things for years and years and years. Um, but again, like with what happened with George Floyd, everyone saw that. That's That's not the first time that happened. I think a lot more people are starting to kind of understand, hey, you know, we've been saying this for years. This should not be happening. Um, and that's maybe not as much of a controversial take as it once was. But again, just because you're not experiencing it and just because, you know, it doesn't it doesn't need a, a, a murder. It doesn't have to be a murder. You know, racial profiling is out there, you know, um, different experiences that black people deal with each and every day. Um, it doesn't have to be that level um, for black people to experience that, to experience that. You know, like racism hasn't gotten better hasn't gotten worse you know like will smith said it's just being recorded now and it's you know being put into a medium that you know a lot of people can pay attention to it now and right now during this coronavirus pandemic a lot of people are at home a lot of people are forced to finally face this reality that they haven't got had to deal with you know as a black man 
you know, all of us, we've had to deal with racism in every walks of life, whether it's, you know, on a university campus or in our profession or, you know, just, you know, <laughs> being in your neighbor, in and around your neighborhood, it's something that affects us every day. But, you know, right now is a moment where people are paying attention and, you know, us as, you know, African-American males, we, we need to take advantage of this moment and, you know, make sure moving forward that we can see some tangible improvement. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when you see the, the, the George Floyd video, I think for a lot of people, you know, if they had heard an account of that, they would have, I think what we wouldn't be talking about this would be talking about, well, no, like, that's not actually how it happened. Like, these are being exaggerated. But I think every person can see that video and say that's that's injustice on tape. And I think when you see that, that that's possible and that you can have someone kneeling on another man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds because he doesn't fear the consequences of what can happen if he does that. Um, I, I think it, it, it allows people to say, okay, I see that now. What else am I missing? And I think for the first time people are listening, I think that's what's kicked off a lot of this discussion um, over the last month. And, and for those folks who have sort of realized over the last month, okay, I see stuff that I haven't seen before. I, I want to learn. I want to help. But I don't know what to do. When somebody says that, what, what is you guys' response? I'd say most importantly, it's about education and understanding why these issues continue to matter. And it goes back to something CJ said, which is, you know, with COVID, people are at home. And the example I've used in the NHL is think about when COVID started. That thing everybody was watching was Tiger King because everybody was at home. Everybody was looking for something to consume. And when you look at what happened with George Floyd, it's the same thing where people are at home. It's right there. They can't escape it. It's on their social feeds. Um, they're talking about it with their friends and family, whether they have the same opinion or different opinions. But it's also taking a look at kind of why people who have felt this is a problem, why they feel the way they do. And with that being said, understand when you say, you know, hey, I think this is a turning point. Understand that for some people, they can't say one way or the other because Emmett Till was supposed to be a turning point. The civil rights movement was supposed to be a turning point. The L.A. riots. Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown. I mean, these have been too many examples. So it's just about understanding history and context. Yeah, and I would say with that, um, I mean, it's fine to say you're not a non-person of color and you want to reach out to a person of color and try to understand it. Um, I would say be careful not to place too much of the burden on them to explain it to you, um, particularly in the era today where we have so many resources. I mean, you can just Google so much of this stuff. Just read a book, watch a documentary, get on YouTube and follow the holes on there. It's like, there's so many ways that you can find out instead of just bugging your, your people of color friends just incessantly about it and, and getting on their nerves. Um, just kind of take the onus like you would with anything else. Like if you're curious about something, you don't necessarily have to go ask all your friends about it. You know, you can do your own individual research. Um, and then if you have questions afterwards, then, you know, come back to your friends, but don't just come to them and ask them to explain the history of racism to you. I was saying, like Ryan said, um, there's been multiple points throughout history that were supposed to be the turning point and things still haven't changed. I mean, we're here in 2020 now. You know, as much as it is about educating yourself and learning, it's also about taking action and practicing what you learn in your everyday life. And, you know, even if you're not sure if you should be out here in these streets, you know, protesting, even if you're not sure that, you know, if you, you should, if you should, you know, post something on social media and spread the message, you, you just have to do it anyway, because people see that. And, you know, Black Lives Matter, this is not a trend. You know, we've been black our entire lives. Um, this problem has been present our entire lives. But, you know, 
whether people are taking action, I don't know if this makes a lot of sense, but whether people are taking action, you know, whether it's genuine or from just from a state of just being uncomfortable, you know, having to be forced to take a side, it's doing something is still better than doing nothing. Yeah. And I think I I would encourage folks, there's no shame in not being educated on some of the things because these things are not taught. You know, we've heard that a lot, you know, in the last week. Oh, I'd never heard of Juneteenth. Oh, I'd never heard of uh, Black Wall Street and all these things. The framing of how these stories are told and how we're taught this in history, I think is changing a little bit this week. I think people are seeing like, oh, the way that these things are framed is 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 kind of messed up in a lot of ways. And I think it helps perpetuate a lot of racist ideas about, well, if black people just pulled up their bootstraps, like everything would be fine. Uh, but but they're you know a lot of these problems are self inflicted and, and all of these things and you know what have you guys made on what on this sort of um, war on I guess what I would call ornamental racism like a, a Confederate flag being banned from a NASCAR race um, a Confederate statue coming down renaming a building um, a lot of these things I, I think you know. I, I, when I see it, it's like, okay, I know what they mean, but me personally, like, they don't cause me active pain. Um, that may not be the case for everyone. I think that's one thing that I've tried to enforce in the last week is black people are not a monolith. People can disagree. People have different thoughts about these things. They don't cause me pain. I'm glad they're gone, even if I'd like to see larger changes. That's kind of where my focus is. Um, but I see it as a gesture of good faith and folks saying we want to fight for more you know, bigger, more difficult challenges and changes up ahead. It's up to them to actually do that and and make good on that gesture. But that's sort of how I take it. What do you guys think when you see, oh, we're not going to, you know, we don't want to sing Eyes of Texas anymore because of the song's roots. We don't want to have Confederate flags flying. We don't want to have, um, you know, a statue honoring Nathan Bedford Forrest or Jefferson Davis or, or uh, Robert E. Lee or all these things. When, when you guys see that, um, and those things come down or people start talking about that. What, what do you make of those conversations? I mean, it's, it's a good start, right? I mean, I don't think, you know, if our goal is to live in an equal and free country, I don't think there's any room for any types of symbols of hate. Those things should be taken down, but it's only a good start. I mean, it doesn't matter if people are still, you know, have racist ideals. It doesn't matter unless people really change the way they live their everyday lives and really like, you know, take it to heart, you know, um, you know, taking those things down, it's good, but it needs to be, there needs to be more, there needs to be follow through, there needs to be, you know, real change. But it also has to, I think, come with the idea that, well, you have some people who feel that way, you're going to have other people who feel the adverse effect where they say, well, I've seen the Confederate flag at games for years. Why now? And what about the people who say, it's heritage, not Hayden, that whole conversation. And that's the thing about, I think, a lot of these movements that are going on right now where you see these statues being taken down or flags or images or songs. It's the idea that like, well, on one hand, you have a camp that says, hey, this should have happened a while ago. You're going to have another camp that says, well, this is part of our tradition. It's part of our Saturdays or, you know, whatever. And, you know, that's just kind of the thing is like when you look at what's going on right now, there's a discussion being had, but there's going to be someone who argues, is it too much too quick? And that's where it's just, it's such a fascinating discussion. Yeah. And I think a lot, I think a lot of people have kind of said, oh, you know, we got to keep these statues up so we can learn from our mistakes and learn from history. We all know what happened. Like we know the history of our country. Um, there's racism all around us. I just learned the other day that 
you know, the ice cream truck song is racist. Like I had no idea <laughs> growing up. Um, and so like these statues and, and the things that student athletes are, are trying to take down their campuses and these, these traditions with racial history, I, you know, let's get rid of it. You know, we should be actively trying to improve our society. Like you can remember what that was and still progressively try to be better than what you were back then. So I don't understand why that's such a debate. And again, it might not bother everyone specifically, but I'm sure it does bother a lot of people. And if that's an issue for, you know, these unpaid student athletes who have to sing these songs and, and be on these campuses, I think we should actively work to change that. I think it's like a window where people are telling on themselves. Like kind of, we talked at the beginning of this conversation about people saying, you know, racism isn't, isn't as bad as it used to be. Uh, you're making it too big of a deal about it. And then when we go to take down these statues or get rid of these lyrics or these flags that have very race, uh, very deep racist past, it's like, oh, hold on, wait a minute. It's like, oh, well, you know, if, if it's so long ago and we're so far past it, why is this such an issue that we get rid of these things? So it's, you can't have it both ways. And so I think that kind of shows where people, they may say something else, but what they really mean when they kind of defend those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's 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 always interesting, I think, to see uh, the reaction. I, I, for me personally, I'm not going to put a lot of mental energy or um, effort in taking those things down. I appreciate it when they are. But when people, like you said, reflexively respond and say, well, we, we got, we got to keep that up. Why? <laughs> like the, this idea that erasing history, if you take these things down are, are, is, is comical to me. No one's asking for these people to be erased from history books. People are asking, Hey, can we not celebrate these people when we're eating, you know, walking through the park with our families? Can I not look at a guy that was willing to die for the right to enslave, sexually assault and oppress black people? Is that, is that too much? Why do, why do we need to fight to keep that? And so like this idea that, Oh, we're erasing our history is, is just completely ludicrous to me. And again, I don't like, I I agree with Deshaun. I think people are telling on themselves a little bit when they're fighting so hard to keep these things around and, there's a big difference between remembrance and celebration. And when we're talking about statues and naming buildings after people, I don't know how people can't see the difference there. Um, If we're going around campaigning, we can never mention Robert E. Lee's name in the history books ever again. We can never talk about these people. Yeah, I'd probably disagree with that, even as a black person. But a statue is is just different. Um, Colton and Tashawn, you guys, uh, three of us here all went to Mizzou, but you guys were at Mizzou in 2015. Um, we saw a moment kind of similar to this on a much smaller level. There were, there were some racist incidents on campus. Football players threatened to boycott uh, if the president, who had largely ignored a lot of those concerns, didn't step down. Spike Lee made a mini-documentary about it, Two Fists Up, if you guys want to check that out, no more. There had been protests on campus for, for several days. The football team gets involved. The president stepped down within like a day, I think. They said they weren't going to play that game that weekend, BYU, right, in Kansas City. For both of you, how does being so kind of intimately involved in that moment inform how you operate now or how you cover this moment um, in sports? Yeah, I think for me, it, it started the year before uh, being born and raised in, in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, like two weeks before my freshman year is when Michael Brown got shot. Uh, and so I saw how that played out and then uh, carried that with me to Mizzou, which is obviously a PWI Um I was in the, on the journalism side of campus uh, in this honors fig, and there was like nobody that looked like me at Mizzou. And so this is a very tense. I'm with you. 
I had the, I had the same <laughs> experience. It's 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 yeah. a PPWI when you do a journalism honors. Yeah. At <laughs> yeah, there were so many classes where I was the only black dude, and it is ridiculous. But um, anyway, so like it, it was, it felt tense on campus. Like you almost could sense that like something because so many black students that go to Mizzou are from St. Louis and from that area. Um, and so the second year when everything started, I think people it kind of gets lost in translation. But like we had been protesting like before the football team had done anything for like a couple weeks. Uh, just because there was such a, there was a string of there's, there's another weird thing in Mizzou is we have like a separate black homecoming. Um, they were like rehearsing uh, for a show that they're going to put up, and like a white student walked up to them and started calling them racial slurs. Uh, there's students getting harassed. Just uh, somebody painted a swastika on a dorm bathroom wall, uh, and so all these things kind of built up and finally just had enough. Uh, obviously, once the football team got involved, the national coverage came in. Um, and so I, I think in the moment I wasn't really viewing it from, even though I was a journalism student, I was just viewing it as a black man in America. And I think that's how I view it now. Um, and I don't really change that even though I'm, I'm writing about it. Um, I still keep that perspective and I think, you know, I guess we're crossing a line when we do that, but this isn't something that I can really not do that with. Like I'm that before I'm anything else. Um, and so I kind of have to own that throughout all of this. Yeah, I think for me, you know, there were a series of racist incidents on campus. Um, you know, our student body president was called a nigger on, on campus. And I mean, you just didn't really feel protected. Um, you know, I was, a, I was a student at the time, student journalist, but I wasn't covering the football team at that point. But I think when all that was happening, you just kind of took a step back and were trying to figure out everything that was going on as that was happening. Um, and I remember, you know, national media coming in like USA Today, ESPN, New York Times, whoever just coming into campus to interview black students on campus, um, try to interview the groups, the student groups that were behind the protests and and wanted to see change. Um, And I I think it all started because, again, it wasn't a safe environment for black students. And you wanted to see some sort of action taken by the people in charge. Um, In this specific instance, it was the university president, Tim Wolf, um, and to be honest, he just kind of went ghost for a while and he did not make himself available. Um, he wasn't really answering questions or, or concerns for, that these students had. And so that inaction is what really snowballed all this. And then you had a student, Jonathan Butler, go on a hunger strike. Um, shortly thereafter, the football team got involved. A couple of players really led that charge. And once they got head coach Gary Pinkle involved, I think that's when it it really took on a new meaning because the whole team was was prepared to sit out again. And I don't know, maybe part of it is trying to hit people in the pockets and that may spark their attention back then. But I think for me as a student and also as a, as a journalist, I mean, seeing all that, it really sort of, you know, I take some of those experiences that I learned back then with me today covering, um, you know, protests by players and, and how they're trying to make change. I think that was a really valuable lesson for me, both as a journalist and a black person in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you hit on it that we're seeing, I think... The coronavirus situation laid bare for a lot of players just how integral they are to the entire campus economy. I think they're seeing the power that they wield and how much the entire economy on campus crumbles if they're not playing football and being given a scholarship and no money on top of that to do that. And so if they're not going to do that, then then they want to be able to, to flex their, their muscles in, in, in a different way. And I think um, we're seeing them do that and, and want to have a different experience uh, on campus uh, CJ, I wanted to go to you as well. You know, you, you played at, at basketball at Auburn. It's a little different than football, but, but being an athlete, um, 
on an SEC campus, you see what's you see what's going on. You know, athletes in a way that, that many of us didn't um, being around every day um, and seeing that and, and, and experiencing that on campus. We're seeing now how much power athletes have, but there's so much fear involved in exercising it. Everybody kind of has to have a united front. But how have your experiences um, shaped how you view this this moment and, and what this um, what the experience of an athlete kind of looks like? Uh, when you are an unpaid college athlete, that that is really responsible for a lot of money going through a campus and a community. No, I think it varies from program to program. You know, in my specific case at Auburn, you know, <laughs> we weren't very good in terms of like, you know, on the court stuff in my three years there. But, you know, I did feel that like in a way I was kind of shielded by the basketball program. You know, I, I went to you know school in Auburn, Alabama, you know, deep south. And, you know, if you're an athlete at Auburn University, you know, you're kind of like a mini celebrity on campus. You know, boosters love you. Teachers love you. Um, you're protected from a lot of the stuff that, you know, other um, black kids have to deal with on campus. And, you know, I didn't really have to experience a lot of that because I, I was kind of had that protection of the basketball program. People knew my face. Um, you know, they've seen me on game days and things of that nature, but, you know, I didn't play my senior year, um, at Auburn. And one thing I noticed is that attitude kind of changed, you know, um, you know, I wouldn't say that people were mistreating me, but it wasn't that same level of attention. I didn't get the same kind of level of attention from my teachers and things of that nature. Um, you know, I, I never had to deal with any like racial slurs or anything like that uh, during my time at Auburn. But, you know, even as an athlete, there are certain, you know, parties that, you know, they'd let my white teammates into, but, you know, wouldn't let me into because I'm black. Right. Um, there were some times where we'd be kind of walking around in the downtown area and, you know, police officer would walk up to kind of talk to us, but, you know, wouldn't pay my white teammates any mind. So, Really, it's just it was just like small things. It was nothing, you know, too serious. But, you know, back onto the, you know, the topic of the power of the student athletes have. I mean, I don't think these guys realize how much power they have. I mean, these are the guys that, you know, bring in so much money for their university, you know, in many, many ways that these guys are the faces of the university. That's why I applaud, you know, someone like Chuba Hubbard at Oklahoma State for kind of, you know, using his platform to, you know, step up and, you know, talk about something he believes in and call and call out his coach. And I don't think there are enough players doing that. And, you know, as you can see, they're not going to dismiss Chuba from the team. They're not going to suspend him. Is how can they? Um, I think more guys need to realize the position they're in, you know, especially when it comes to white athletes. I applaud Trevor Lawrence for speaking out against um, racism and police brutality. You know, he didn't have to do that, but he said, you know what, I have this platform and let me use it to actually do something positive in this world. And there needs to be more people like Trevor Lawrence. There needs to be more of these athletes step, stepping up because, you know, in some of these college towns, you know, like here in Tucson, some of these athletes have the large, have the loudest voices and they will be heard and they need to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned it. Um, you have some coaches, Mike Gundy, obviously the biggest example of a guy who, you know, now that he's sort of seen um, what happens when he doesn't really have his players back and he's got to sort of scramble to, to make the case that he does. Um, but you've seen guys that, that haven't really shown that they're they're on board with their players and, and are sort of in tune to what their players' experiences are. 
Um, you have some who maybe put out a statement a week ago or a couple weeks ago and you haven't said or done much else. Um, you have guys who've been out there marching with players, trying to pursue action, doing a number of things. When you guys look around the landscape um, of, of college sports, what do you make of how these coaches have handled it? And, and Ryan, I'll start with you. We haven't heard from you in a little while. What have you made of, of what we've seen from college coaches? You know, it's interesting because I think the thing you have to realize with college coaches is appearances are everything. And these are coaches that are so good at recruiting and in-home visits, and they know what appearances mean and the value that that has. And so when you see some take an active role, you see some don't take an active role and some who are in the middle. If you're a recruit or a parent of a recruit or a player or the parent of a player, you're probably starting to ask some questions about, okay, what have we gotten ourselves into? And, and with a sport like this, it's interesting because I know we're going to get to it later, but it goes back to what was said about CJ about players kind of knowing, you know, the role they play in driving an economy. And it seems like those conversations just aren't simply had. And if there's not that realization, why is it that way? But also it goes back to just how each place operates and what's important, what isn't. So covering Florida State, and I also covered the University of Washington for a bit, like Florida State was the sort of place where it was clear sports drove everything to the point where like that's what dominated the landscape. And there weren't really these other conversations about what athletes can do, the power athletes have. Whereas if at a place like Washington, yes, they cared about winning, but there were these conversations about race, sexual assault, mental health, understanding that athletes have a platform. And it's why when Mike Hopkins was it was his first year as the head coach. He had his players sit there and write down terms about race that meant something to them. They wore it on their warm-up shirts, and it was something that they talked about in the university embrace. So it's just it's really telling because you just don't necessarily know what people are thinking in a sport where appearances are everything. Well, I was gonna say just um, speaking of Florida State, just kind of uh, what we saw last month with. Uh, their new coach, Mike Norvell, and their best player, you know, senior defensive tackle, Marvin Wilson. Uh, you know, I, I feel like the biggest difference, I don't I don't know if college athletes, I don't think they have much more power now than they did, say, 20, 30 years ago. Um, but they're just, they, they have the largest platform that any athlete has ever had through social media. And so it's very easy for them to accumulate this massive public following and support system and have all these eyes on something when they call somebody out, like Marvin Wilson did with, with Mike Norvell. Uh, just for context, Mike Norvell, I, I interviewed him, and he said that he had individual conversations with each and every player about what happened with George Floyd. Um, and it ended up being not the case. He didn't have back-and-forth conversations with every single player. And Marvin Wilson said that on Twitter, and it kind of caused this firestorm. And he said he was going to you know, threaten to boycott workouts. Um, and I don't know how well that goes over 20 years ago when he doesn't really have this public forum. And like if he just walks into Mike Norvell's office and says this, I don't know how, where that goes from. Um, but just the fact that these guys have this platform now, they're learning how to use that strategically. Uh, obviously, we saw that with Chuba and some other athletes around the country with some of these incidents that have popped up. And so it's really just starting to hold these coaches accountable, uh, kind of as, as Ryan alluded to, just, you know, they make all these, these promises during recruiting and say, we care about your, your son and we're going to take care of him. Overall, like it's not just about football. That's the tagline that they all use. And now we're seeing, all right, no, we're actually going to hold that to you when something happens that affects us that's not sports related. And not everybody is responding to it well, but 
I think we have seen, like even with Norvell, he's come around, he's been participating with his players in protests and very active on social media. And, and so some of them are responding, but we're kind of seeing, you know, maybe somebody like Gundy. I don't know, really know if it's that genuine. You know, I, I think even when he apologized, like he didn't really apologize. <laughs> you know, he just said, I, I, I didn't understand how that, you know, he just kind of tried to talk his way out of it. And so I, I, I'll be interested to see, like if maybe not next year, but maybe five to 10 years from now, you know, where do, where do these programs go from here after, after the situation? Yeah, I think time will reveal who's serious and, and who is not. Um, CJ or Colton, do you guys have any input on, on what, what you've seen from coaches um, over this, this last uh, month or so? Yeah, um, so I was interested, like a lot of people, you know, any coach can put out a statement out there. Um, so I was interested to see what a black head coach like Mel Tucker, the one I cover at Michigan State, what his response would be to this. And, um, you know, what I found out was, you know, I think in late May, he really was, was seeing all of this. He was kind of internalizing it. And, you know, that caused him to go to work pretty quickly. Um, he put out a statement on a Friday night. And even before then, he was having discussions with players and administrators to talk about, hey, what can I do to support my players, to educate my players, to give them the resources that they need um, to, to speak out? And so when I, when I caught up with him, I talked to him for about 45 minutes um, one day. And he was really insightful. And you could tell that he had done the reading, done the research. And obviously, I'm sure as a black man, he's had his own experiences. So this means something to him. It probably hits different than it would for another coach out there. And so when I talked to him, one of the things he mentioned was passing on that information, passing on that feeling um, to his, his, his student athletes and making sure that, you know, people can, no matter where you're from, like a locker room is diverse. So they're going to have a ton of different personalities and backgrounds. But um, you know, not everyone can relate to a black student athlete. So something that was important to him was to create an open um, dialogue for people to share their experiences, black athletes to share their experiences with their white counterparts. Um, they had a couple of town halls during one week and brought in um, black police officers and uh, mental health counselors, just people to kind of guide that conversation. And he said it was really effect effective. And um, shortly after that, a few players actually reached out and um, went out on Twitter and posted their own statement saying that we need change. America is a country that has never been great for us. It has not always been great for everyone. And I think that was one of the key conversations from that meeting. And now he's kind of uh, presenting his players with different links like Know Your Rights, Black Lives Matter, various student organizations on campus. So he's really committed to making this a lasting change. He mentioned that he doesn't want this to be lost in a new cycle like it has in the past. He wants this He's doing what he can at his university with his students to make some sort of lasting change. And that was the most important thing for him. And that about sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think again, it, right now, I, you can, I don't want to be the guy that's parsing through the statements. I think you can read a statement and you can tell who kind of understands and who is just uh, – we don't like any injustice. All injustice Racism is bad. Racism is bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, if you're not going to talk about what we're actually talking about here, policing, uh, inequity in all kinds of forms, then, like, okay, just – I don't really want to hear from you, honestly. Like, I just don't. But I think time will reveal who is serious about this and, and who is not. You know, for the I media – I guess it just comes down to, like – I guess it just comes down to being genuine, kind of like piggybacking what Colton said. I did a story with Dan O'Neill a couple weeks ago where we interviewed a bunch of um, Division One basketball, men's basketball coaches, black and white. And a lot of the questions, you know, we asked is, you know, 
Ask the, ask the white coach, how do you handle racism? Ask the black coach, you know, how do you handle racism in your locker room? Um, not going to throw out any names here, but I was talking with one white coach, and a little bit of what Colton says is, you know, we bring in speakers, we bring in police officers to talk to the players. But, you know, one thing that this white coach says is, you know, when these, when these speakers, when these figures come in, we as coaches leave the room. And I don't think that's very genuine, right? And then I talked to a black coach. And, you know, obviously, you know, I was like, you know, how do, how do you handle racism in your locker room? He's like, no, I tackle it head on. You know, we come together. We talk about our experiences. We're present. We're in the room. You know, you can tell it's, it's genuine, right? And I just feel like until more white coaches start taking that approach, no matter how uncomfortable, it's never going to truly come across as genuine or that you truly care for your players. You know, it's kind of like, you know, when, when you bring in other people and leave the room, you're kind of avoiding the conversation altogether. And sure, as a white coach, you're never, ever going to be able to put yourselves into the shoes of your black players. You're never going to fully be able to understand what they're going through. But at the same time, you can't run from it. You can't be scared of that conversation. You know, not only is it going to make you, you know, better as a man to be able to have those conversations comfortably, but you're going to be able to your players are going to be able to have that faith that, yes, you are really an ally. You do really care. You're not just, you know, bringing in these people to talk of just to check a box for compliance, you know? Yeah. And, and this really shouldn't just fall on black coaches out there. Like like you mentioned, the white coaches are also going to have to go into living rooms of, of black parents and, and explain how they plan on protecting their, their kids when they come to that university. You know, those are conversations that they're having every day. And if you can't navigate a conversation like this, you probably should not be leading a room of young men and student athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, to go back to what we were talking about at the top of the show, um, which kind of leads into to our next point, when you when you hear, uh, oh, you know, racism, it's it's not that, you know, it's not that big a deal. It's usually from from white people who don't really have a lot of conversations with black people. And I think it's like, you know, there were a bunch of us that, that uh, contributed to a piece of The Athletic that just talked about our own experiences with racism. And I think, like, there's a reason why you're going to have a hard time if you ask any black person – have you ever experienced racism? You're gonna have a hard time not hearing like five stories like out the gate. Which, like, which one? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that was one of yeah. the things that we were talking about when we were putting together that piece. Is like honestly, I don't know which ones to share. And and it's like there's a there's a bunch. And I, I, for my personal one, I, I kept it solely to the stories where like there's no real middle ground here like this is like capital r racism like you can't really like excuse this away it's like i didn't include the story about like when i'm walking my dog in my neighborhood and the lady's like do you live here or are you just dog sitting for someone is that racism i don't know maybe maybe not but like i don't really want to leave that open for interpretation um but the fact is you look around in the profession you don't see a lot of people that look like us. Um, it's a very old white profession. I've been in a lot of press boxes over the last 10 years. I've been in a lot of journalism classes. I've been in a lot of uh, uh, post-game scrums. There's not a lot of black people, uh, whereas the players predominantly are. Uh, NBA media is probably the, the blackest media, I would say, uh, just in general. Um, Ryan, you know, you used to cover Florida State. Now you cover hockey. I imagine hockey is maybe even less diverse than, than college sports, if I was guessing. Is that about right? In some ways, it might honestly be the same because if you include people of South Asian heritage, you're like Pakistani, Indian, mm-hmm. those of, you know, like, let's say, Chinese or Japanese heritage. There might be as many, but the hard part is it's like there might be French sites that you don't know exist where they might have someone of color and you may not think of that person. So 
Mm-hmm. Either way, like in college football, which I'm more than happy to jump into this one if you want, like it's it's not as good as it could or should be. Yeah, so I think when 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 that comes up, I think the the re, the reflexive reaction is, well, why does it matter? Just get the best guy. Just get the best writer. Can you? Why does why does having black reporters sure. covering black athletes? Why does that affect the sport? Why should people who sort of look around and say, I don't know, things seem fine to me. What are they missing? Sure. Well, the thing is, it's the number one argument everybody's raised is, how can you cover a sport with predominantly black men and you don't even understand the issues that impact them? And that's a big question that's been asked by black reporters for decades that now has come into the landscape. And people are either like, yeah, we agree with that or humming and hawing. The reason why that's so important and that's and that matters is because context, again, is everything. And when you look at what goes on with certain teams, certain programs, you start picking up on things. And that's important to how a team works. Like, why is it that, for example, you know, you'll see a team where all the captains are white when some of their best players are black? Are you trying to insinuate something or do you not see black players as leaders or do they not feel that they can be? But also, like, there are so many issues that go on that people don't really look at. So not to get too deep here, but. With football, especially college football, it relies on a gladiator class of people, people who just they need sports in order to help fund things like going to college. And from that, the majority of those people are going to be black. And so for some fans, they might look at it as, well, this kid is 6'3", 220, his 40 time is 4'3", let's get him. And while there's that facet of it, Shouldn't the humanity of this kid be important in the sense of, is he the first person in his family to go to college? What are the obstacles that present them from going to college? And because of that, it's like people lose sight of things. So there is a player I covered in my career who was a five-star can't-miss linebacker, but every year he had academic issues. And people were almost just kind of like surprised, like, well, what do you mean he might not play? And it's like, this is something you go through every single year. And that's where it becomes dangerous and where when you start looking at players as commodities and not as human beings, that's where, again, it goes back to the idea of this is one of several reasons why you need diversity covering college football. Because not only that, but there might be things that players might want to talk about, but they feel they can't because that's the other thing in this too is, and all fours of us seen it being on different beats. We know there are some reporters who are so afraid of drawing the ire of the institution, they will not report anything. Just say yes, be pat on the head, and go about their business. Yeah, I think another thing that, uh, like speaking on the point of people saying just hire the best person, a lot of times, I mean, being black helps you, you know, when it comes to these jobs. I mean, I came into Florida State. Um, when I got there, I was the only black person that covered the team as a writer. And um, not, I was somebody that, that dove into recruiting pretty deeply, pretty much right away. Like I would go to high schools, I would go to people's homes, I would go to their neighborhoods. And obviously the majority of the players that they recruited were black. Um, in fact, I think their, their class, the, the first year I got there was entirely black. Um, and so none of the other reporters did that, but also part of that was I had to go to neighborhoods they may not be comfortable in. You know, I could go into these places and feel fine because that's, where I'm from, you know, I, I can relate to these people and they feel comfortable opening up to me because they know they can, they can talk to me and then see where I'm from. And I mean, I had a player, I won't name him, but I, I sat down with him and, you know, he, he didn't know who I was before. He's, I just texted him. I had his number. He didn't know I was black until I got there. 
and after he, he we had this long interview and he was like honestly if you weren't black i wouldn't have gave you half those answers and it's you know, say that's only going to happen with every single case but there's a difference that comes with it and it's important to not to say that that's the only reason why we should be in that position like obviously we have to be good as well but uh there's just certain things we can relate to and certain things we can uncover that people who don't look like us can't do I can relate to that too, man. I'm the only black rider down here covering U of A. And, um, you know, that coupled with the fact that I'm a former athlete has really, you know, helped me on this beat. You know, players know that, you know, not only understand what they go through in their daily, day, daily, you know, lives as a black man, they also, I can also relate to them as a student athlete because I was once in their shoes one of these days. And, you know, because that, you know, Whenever guys can, you know, they give me a little bit of extra. They open up a little more. Um, things of that nature, you know, don't tell U of A, but I got guys reaching out to me for certain things. And, you know, if I was just like everyone else in this market, that wouldn't that wouldn't be the case. But, you know, just because I'm black, um, you know, in this market, you know, with these players, it gives me a little bit of an advantage. Yeah, and I, I tend to think that the best journalists are good communicators and they can kind of spread that message to, to the readers or subscribers. And in order to do that, you need to be well-rounded. And, you know, they ask us to cover injuries and, and business transactions, whatever. And so I also think part of that includes, especially today more than ever, um, covering race and covering sport together. And, you know, I think, you know, the reason why people say diversity matters is because some of these white writers or whoever else, they might not want to tell those stories. They might not be well-equipped to tell those stories because they don't educate themselves and do the work. And for some of us, we have those experiences that can help us, you know, to Sean and I being at Mizzou during those protests and, and, and the football team jumping in there, or just being a black man in, in America. You know, we're all black before we were journalists. And that's always going to be the case no matter when until we retire, right? So I, I think that's why we need more diversity in sports journalism specifically. We need to be able to tell those, those stories because our counterparts aren't always active in doing that. And if not for us, a lot of the stories wouldn't be told. And the thing I wanted to add real quick, but it's also, I think, just the idea of it's knowing that it exists. Because, I mean, we talk so much about, you know, the need for diversity among head coaches and, you know, for young men and young women, depending on your sport, to see that there are people who look like you in these positions. I mean, the same thing goes towards journalism as well. And so if you are a kid who is black and you go to a school that is predominantly white and you might see a couple assistant coaches, maybe assistant strength and conditioning coach and people work in the cafeteria. And that's kind of your experience with people who are in somewhat authority figures. Maybe you think this is how it is because someone could come from high school environments where the people who talked to them in high school were all white people. I mean, David and I talked about this the other day. Like you look at the recruiting websites, you look at rivals, they are going nowhere near this subject. But then it also goes back to another issue. It's like when they cover recruiting, it's that commodity thing. So when I worked at Rivals, it was one of their all-American things in Orlando. And it was kind of like, they're getting haircuts. It's so cool. Yes, black people get haircuts. We've been doing this for as long as anybody. It's not that big of a deal. But because you're not used to being around black people, it's almost kind of like, for you, this is this cool thing, but then it sets up this false narrative where you try to play to certain kids about X, Y, and Z when you're putting on a front and kids are smart enough to see through that. And when you don't have diversity, that's the other thing is it's giving them this idea of like all everybody sees me as again is a commodity and not much else. 
you know, I, it's this is a, a weird time for a lot of reasons. Um, and I think, I, I think I'll start with Deshaun on this. Deshaun, you mentioned growing up in, in Ferguson. You lived through a situation like we saw in Minneapolis uh, with George Floyd. I take objectivity seriously. I'm the guy that's like, okay, I've, I'm not going to wear orange really ever covering Tennessee. If they're playing Kentucky, I'm probably not going to wear like a blue tie or whatever. I try to keep it down the middle as best I can because people get obsessed with that stuff and the little things matter. But speaking for myself, it's never more difficult than when we're talking about getting rid of things that have caused me pain in my life and can cause um, other people that look like me and other people that you know, my kids down the line, uh, you know, that, that can cause them pain. And, and if Wesley Lowry has talked and written about this, um, um, I think it comes up, it's different from covering college football or any football or any sport versus a corrupt politician or whatever. It's, it's not that hard to stay objective. But right now, I think for, for black journalists, it is because I, I, this is an issue where there's some good faith debate on how to fix this. But there's not really a both sides to this. There's not. There's a lot of false equivalency. There's not a lot of debate on like, okay, does systemic racism exist? Do all these things? Is there a disparity here? Do we need to fix these things? Um, how do your opinions or experiences and and cover that? And how do you think about how do you stay objective or what does objectivity look like in a moment like this, Sean? Yeah, I think maybe. Um Given when I got into the industry, I've only been in, in it for two years now. Um, it's a little bit more acceptable or a lot more acceptable for, for these things to be discussed. But I've never viewed race as something that you are objective about. You know, it's not politics. It's not, you know, some of the issues that we have and, and racism. Like there's no middle ground on racism. It's either you are or you aren't. And if you like this, racism is wrong. There's no way around it. Just like murder or sexual assault or any of these issues that we talk about all that stuff is wrong like, there's no debate but all of a sudden when it's racism there's just people want to get in between on it and it's like no like if you're if you think that racism is okay you're trash like there's no there's no if ands and buts about it and uh i just carry that you know it's not like i'm saying who you should vote for um not saying what you should believe in it's just saying that specifically with this issue black people shouldn't continue to be killed for no reason that's not a, that's, I can't be, there's nothing to be objective about there. And if that makes people uncomfortable, and so what? Unfollow me. Don't read my story. I don't care. <laughs> like, I'm going to keep doing it. And, you know, luckily, I mean, I, maybe I'm spoiled. I work for a company that, you know, the athletic, they allow us to talk about those things. Not everybody, not everywhere is like that. Um, but as long as that remains the case, I'm just going to continue to do it. And uh, I think most people, uh, I, I would say five, six years ago when Ferguson happened, it, it wasn't very accepted because uh, that was mainly a black people thing. Like that was the only people that were supportive of that were black people. Now with this George Floyd thing, it's more of there's a lot more white people than before that are supportive of it and people from other uh, ethnicities that are supportive of it. And so when I come out and, and give these sort of you know thoughts that I have or share my experiences, it's much more accepted than it was six years ago. Six years ago, I might get attacked on Twitter and call all kinds of crazy stuff now. Like if you don't if you don't agree with me, you're like looked at as weird now. And I think even in this short amount of time, like that's you know just over half a decade. That's not very long, but it seems like something's starting to shift here. I was going to say covering the NHL. I mean, it's been a conversation that's now being had in a large scale for the first time for a lot of people. And point that's been made on podcasts is it's trying to get people to understand that 
racism is not like cancer, where if someone says, oh, I think cancer is great. I love cancer. I cheer for cancer. There's going to be this natural look of why would you say that? It's cancer. It kills people. It's horrible. But with race and racism, it's still a discussion for some where it's a contrarian issue. And it's it's making that clear to people that this is still how some people in the world feel. And I think as for covering it, I've had a lot of people ask me like, you know, on radio or podcasts, like, you know, what's your opinion on this? And the thing that you have to say, at least I feel is one, as a reporter, you should never have an opinion on anything. It's our goal to remain objective. Cause I mean, you look at our current climate and people are always looking for reasons to say, this is why you can't trust this person. Or I question X, Y, and Z. But then as far as that concern too, you have to make people aware of like, as the black reporter covering race, you definitely have to be careful about what you say and you have to be able to be objective in this situation. And I think, again, times are certainly different because like to Sean's point, this is an era where people want to have those conversations. Not that I'm like that much older, I'm 35, but I know like when I came out of school in the first city I, I worked in was Richmond, Indiana. And it was a place that had all sorts of racial disparities, but these conversations were never had and you had to be nuanced and write about it in a roundabout way. So again, I think it just, it goes back to what you're covering, what your audience is, but also just knowing that no matter what you write, whether you're objective or whether you lean sort of towards, toward a certain way, there's always going to be criticism no matter what. Yeah. And I think, as black journalists, we shouldn't be shying away from our experiences. You know, we've talked about it right here. We've all had experiences. We all have stories. We have to ask which one, right? Which encounter with racism should I talk about today? Um, and athletes are the same way. And I think a lot of people, I know I, for me specifically, you know, my mom had a talk with me when I was 16, 17, getting my license and, you know, the talk, right? What do you do when you get pulled over? You know, have your information ready. Don't reach for anything. Don't make any sudden movements. Record if you can. Things like that. You know, those are conversations that are happening across the country. And it might not be happening in, in the white areas and, in, in, you know, certain parts of the country, but in others, it is. and absolutely is. And I think that's a shared experience um, among black, black men and women in this country. And racism is an everyday threat. And as black journalists, we should not be shying away from our own experiences, we should be using that to reinforce the message that these athletes are trying to get across. And, you know, hey, this statue, you know, it, it affects me. I don't like how this makes me feel. Can we do something about it? Why are they, Why do they feel that way? Let's talk about it. And I think using our own experiences, we can actually do that and, you know, maybe make some change down the road. Uh you know, I appreciate you guys all coming uh, for this and, and participating in this. Um, I guess I'll open up the floor if anybody has any, any parting thoughts uh, on this whole issue or, or sort of what happens next. Just the only thing I'll throw out is everybody keeps wanting to say, is this a landmark moment? And if it's college football specifically, of all the sports, you could argue that might be the one that needs to answer this question maybe more than, than anyone because, look, race has been – a talking point when it comes to coaches, administrators, athletic directors, uh, players, players' rights, how they're treated, even how it's covered. And what goes on is going to be so just seismic because, again, you're talking about a sport that while it can unite people from all different walks of life, there has to be the understanding of understanding the differences that make these people who they are. And that even includes the players. And again, and I know I've talked a lot about commodity, but again, it goes back to the idea of 
Do you see players as commodities or do you see them as people? And being able to figure out the two is important in a time like this. Because if you see someone as a commodity, you think, well, they don't think, they don't feel, they don't have emotions. But if you see them as a person, whether you agree or disagree, you can say they're a person and they feel that way, which it seems strange to say, but that's the reality when you look at some fans in this sport. I would say something that something that Cole kind of talked about earlier. Uh, you shouldn't only care about black people when one of us gets killed. Like it shouldn't take that for you to understand that whether George Floyd happened or not, my experience as a black man in America is what it is. Like I still have to deal with these things on a daily basis and nobody cares until, like you said, it's on a video and you can see it and it's very explicit and there's no middle ground on it. But there's so many things that we have to improve on when it comes to race in this country. And for that stuff to change and be sustained, we need people to care like this all the time. Not to say that you're going to be in the streets protesting year round or anything of that nature. But don't post on social media for a month because it's cool and everybody else is doing it and then shut up for the rest of your life. And that's not going to help us. Like for this to actually get better, we need this to be something that people, and that's kind of what CJ said, it has to be genuine. And if it is genuine, it will continue. If not, we'll see the same thing that happened after Ferguson. I mean, everybody cared for that year. And then after that, what happened? Just went back to the way it was. And so hopefully this time is different. You know, Black Lives Matter is not a trend, man. It's not a trend, you know. Um, people got to believe it and people have to make it a part of their everyday lives. If it's not genuine, if it's not, you know, something you love and believe in and nothing's going to change. It seems like a good place to, to leave it off. Uh, again, thank you guys. I am David Ubbin for Ryan Clark, Colton Pouncey, CJ Holmes, Deshaun Reed and the athletic. Thank you guys for listening, watching, consuming and uh, keep, uh, keep pushing for change. Uh, because it's needed. Thanks, guys.